As a kid, I remember um, seeing this movie on TV um, called Oh God. It came out in 1977, and it stars John Denver and George Burns. Some of you are chuckling because you've seen this movie. Uh, As a kid, I just thought this was like the best thing I'd ever seen. And um, if you're not familiar with the story, there's a gentleman named, I think his name is Jerry Lester, and he is an associate manager at a grocery store, and God picks him to be sort of an ambassador to the world. And so um, God keeps trying to schedule a meeting with him. So he sends him a a written invitation to a meeting, and he ignores it because he thinks it's a prank. And then he talks to him on the radio, and he thinks he's going crazy. Uh, So finally, God does a house call, uh, and it's not at the most comfortable timing. So I'm going to show you that scene. Jerry? Jerry? Oh, God. That's right. Is that you? In person. You're not on the radio? Have you got a radio out here? No. Bingo. You're here? In my bathroom? Come take a look. I can't. I'm naked. You think I don't know what you've got? There's another little goof of mine. Shame. I don't know why I thought we needed shame. Come on out. Don't catch cold. Not not what you expected, huh? Pick the look you could understand. For someone else, I would look different. I could do any face, voice, whatever. I could, I could even be a woman. You're feeling a little strange, huh? Very strange. Like you're gonna faint. You know what's good for that? Shaving. Shaving? Sometimes when you don't feel normal, doing a normal thing makes you feel normal. Yeah, start shaving. Okay, uh, I, I feel like I could easily do a whole sermon just on that clip. So I don't want to support all the theology of that film, but I hope you see the great connection between Adam and Eve naked in the garden and ashamed when God comes from them, and then him in his shower ashamed when God comes for him, right? Uh, and I, I would love to talk more about the shape. Maybe we'll come back to shaving again. I think that's a really interesting insight. Um, but, but what strikes me most about that movie and um, about really a lot of movies like it, Bruce Almighty, etc., they all kind of wrap around this idea of how do we meet God, right? How do we encounter God? And, and you've heard me say this many times, but I think the central question of the Bible and the central question of, of human existence is, is how do we meet God, right? How do we in- encounter the one who made us and come to know who that person is? Uh, and it's actually pretty difficult to do right? Most of us um, have not had the experience of meeting God in our bathroom, and God ordinarily does not do house calls. But before, you know, sin, sure, we had this great communion with God, but afterwards, it's pretty hard to connect with God. Not very many people have the experience of hearing or seeing God like that. 
And you're going to say, well, Jim, wait a minute. What about Abraham and Sarah? They had lunch with God once. Or Jacob, he wrestled with God. Or Moses, he saw God in the burning bush. Or Samuel, he met God in the temple. And I yeah, lots of great examples of that in Scripture. But those stories are so extraordinary, so outside the norm that we've been talking about them for 4,000 years, right? Most of us don't have that experience. Most of us don't get to meet God like Abraham and Sarah or like Moses or like Jerry. So th this problem of encountering God and, and meeting God is the one I think the Bible's trying to solve. Uh, and uh, there is a point where it stops being the exception, where God shows up and meets everybody all at once. And that's at a moment after the Exodus at Mount Sinai. If you remember, there is a, a cloud and a pillar of fire that leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And after they get to Mount Sinai, that, that, that cloud, that sort of fiery cloud, descends upon the mountain. And from the mountain, everybody hears the voice of God as, the, as God gives them the Ten Commandments. And, and what happens? They freak out, right? I mean, they are terrified. This moment where Lester almost, I'm sorry, Jerry Lester almost faints is, again, kind of biblical, right? When you meet God, it's a little bit scary. And so the Israelites say, hey, can we stop doing this, right? This is too intense for us. Moses, please go talk to God for us. So Moses and God have a little chat on the mountain, and God says, yeah, I get it. It's too much for them. I have this idea, though. What if we make a place where we um, can come together, where they can come and meet me. And, and, and so he gives Moses this design for the tabernacle, right? And Moses builds the tabernacle, which is sometimes called the tent of meeting. And, and we're told at the end of Exodus, after the tabernacle is built, that same cloud, fiery cloud of God's glory, descends upon the tabernacle and fills it. And they can't go in because the, the glory of the God prevents it. So uh, Moses has them build a tabernacle, which is a tent, because the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're moving around, and uh, they need a, a, a way to bring God with them. But skip ahead a few generations, and Israel has been established as a kingdom with great, powerful kings and strong national borders. And instead of being 12 tribes, they've begun to see themselves as one united people. And under that reign of David and then Solomon, um, they get this idea, what if there was a permanent place for God, right? What if God wasn't just in a tent? What if God had a palace like the kings are supposed to have? So Solomon builds God a temple. And, and this is a good thing. And we can tell this is a good thing because that cloud shows up again, right? That fiery cloud of God's glory that was in Mount Sinai and in the tabernacle. The priests could not stand because a cloud filled the house of the Lord the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So we know this is a great thing, right? That, that finally God has a permanent place with His people where they can come and they can meet with Him. Where they can come and, and, and say prayers and expect them to be heard. Where they can come and ask for forgiveness and offer a sacrifice and expect that God will forgive them. Where they can come and hear from the priests uh, the Torah and learn what it is they're supposed to do in following this God. Where they can come and expect to if not perhaps see God as Abraham did, at least experience his presence, right? It's a great, wonderful thing. But the temple's imperfect. The temple's imperfect. And, and Solomon actually realizes this. We'll get to it in a minute. Um, 
But, but I, I think there is one really big challenge that comes with the temple, maybe a, a couple of big challenges that come with the temple um, that make it an imperfect way for us to meet God. And, and I think the, the most significant one, obviously there's some clear stuff, right? There's only one temple. You can't have a temple in your hometown, right? You've got to go to Jerusalem. There's only one place. But, but I think the most significant challenge is that the temple begins to almost confine God, right? It's almost like, hey, this is the space where God is, and we go there to meet with God. When we go somewhere else, we don't really expect to see God those other places, because where is God? Well, He's in His temple. And, and, and this, I, I think, becomes ultimately a way of kind of domesticating God, right, of limiting Him and constraining Him and making Him kind of ordinary. Uh, July 4th, 1997, the Mars rover called Sojourner landed on the surface of Mars. It was the first of our rovers to be there, as I recall, and it was a huge deal. And um, as the rover traveled around the red planet, we have all these still shots. Somebody took those still photos and used their technology magic and turned it into a movie, okay? And I'm just going to show you a little bit of the movie of the Mars rover Sojourner traveling around on the red planet for the first time. And I want you to notice, if you can, it's going to be hard to read, I'll tell you in a minute, um, the names of some of the rocks that the rover visits, okay? Let's play that clip. traveling over um, our first foreign planet. There's an author named Barbara uh, Enrich who speaks about this. She says, quote, Isn't this just the cutest little universe you've ever seen? After centuries of technological striving, we finally got to Earth's strange sibling Mars and found rocks named Yogi, Scooby-Doo, and Barnacle Bill. Someone high up at NASA must have issued a firm directive. Keep it cuddly, guys. We don't want Mars to seem like, you know, outer space. So when Sojourner bumped into one of the rocks, they were told Yogi gave her a boo-boo. And by the way, yes, the robot is a girl. And when she made a close approach to another, we were informed that Sojourner and Barnacle Bill are holding hands. Barbara goes on to say, when we turned the Mars terrain into a comic strip, we are making things seem tame and familiar before we even know what they are. 
that strikes me as um, overwhelmingly significant, that, that we make things seem tame and familiar before we even know what they are. That somehow, um, I think we do this with God, we say, God, if you would just come and be in this temple and hang out in this space, and hey, we have this particular way of worship we're going to do that makes us feel comfortable and good, and then if you just stay in your little box over there, in your little building, we'll have the rest of our lives to live however we want. And, and I think this is, unfortunately, the, the danger of the temple, right? And it's kind of a danger of our modern worship that we think, oh, well, I go to church on Sunday, and that's my hour of time with God, and the rest of my life is kind of mine to live, but I always give that hour to God. Or, um, boy, you know, I like to volunteer, and I do that in my church, and when I'm at church, I act like church. When I go to youth group, I'm in my youth group mode. When I leave youth group, I can be in whatever mode I want to be in. Solomon is aware of this danger, right? He's aware that we might try to constrain God to limit Him to this new space. And so he says, uh, this is in his prayer in chapter 8, verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Solomon gets it, right? He gets that this idea of the temple is not supposed to be a place that limits God's presence, but gives us access to God in a limited fashion. Uh, and this reminds me of uh, that scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking to the children about Aslan. Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia is Jesus, right? But in that world, he appears as a giant lion, and giant talking lion. And the children are getting kind of scared of this description, and they, they look to the beavers and they say, is Aslan safe? And the beavers scoff at them and they say, absolutely not. He is not safe, but he is good. He's not a tame lion. And I, and I, I love that idea that, that God will not be tamed, um, He will not be limited, He will not be constrained to um, some places in our life, but when we try to do that, He will break out and take over everything. Um, by the way, this happens to the Israelites, right? They begin to say, oh yeah, we really like the Lord, and so when we go to His temple, we worship Him. We like other gods too. When we go to their temples, we worship them. And, um, you know, when we go home, we think about whoever we want to think about. And after a few hundred years, God ends up having the temple destroyed, and there's a moment in Ezekiel where he has a vision of that cloud of fiery glory leaving the temple, right? God saying, hey, um, this isn't working for me anymore. That cloud shows up again in the story of Jesus. Jesus, who describes himself as God's temple. Remember, he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, speaking of his body. Remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, after he's transfigured before Peter and James and John, there's a cloud that descends upon the mountain right? and they can't see or move because it's that same cloud of God's presence and God's glory. But that's not the end of Jesus' goal. Jesus' new idea of how we're going to meet God is a new kind of temple. And so that cloud of God's presence shows up one more time in the New Testament. It shows up on Pentecost in an upper room where the disciples who are gathered together after Jesus has ascended into heaven and they're debating what they're supposed to do and all of a sudden fire and wind show up, right? This this presence of God's glory appears above their heads, and every one of them has this thing above them, right, that's glowing. It's that 
cloud of fiery glory again. And God's saying, you are going to be my new temple. You are going to be the place where the world meets me and I meet the world. Um, by the way, um, we, we've done this a number of times in church before, but you guys remember this old thing we did as a kid, right, with your fingers? Um, and I've said this before, but it's really important. The church has nothing to do with the building we're in, right? So we, we say, you know, here's the church's building, here's the steeple, open the doors, see the church. The, the church isn't the structure we have, the church is y'all. Uh, and, and the amazing story of the New Testament is that the presence of God that was once limited to the temple is now in every one of us because we are that point of access to God for the world. And it's no longer possible to domesticate Jesus, right? We can't just keep Him in this building. This building is irrelevant to the church. You are the church. Wherever you go, you take Him with you. You can no longer say, oh yeah, I'm going to give that hour to God because God is with you in the next hour and the next and the next whether you particularly like that or not. And it's no longer a requirement that we all get up and go to a building in Jerusalem, right? Because wherever you go, you take God. So I want to tell you two stories about what it means to be the church and as Paul writes about, to build the church, to build the temple. Um, the first is uh, about a, a member. Actually, they're all about members in our congregation. Um, I had a friend who came to our church a little while ago and um, he was in a really broken place. He came with um, a history of addiction. He came with um, a, a relatively recent divorce. Um, he came uh, with not being able to see his children for the last three or four years since that divorce. He came homeless, living in a tent. And he came to this church just trying to find some help. And you helped him, and you helped him with food and with clothes. Uh, and then you helped him with friendship, and you welcomed him into our family and made him part of our family. And then um, you helped him find a place to live. And then you helped him find a car and get a driver's license for the first time in like a decade. And then you helped him um, reconnect um, with his heavenly Father, and then you helped him reconnect with his children. And in his life, you laid a foundation of Jesus Christ, and then you built on it with gold and silver and precious jewels. You built on it with eternal things, and his life is eternally different because of it. And you equipped him not just to experience God here, but to be a place where his kids and his family could experience God through him. See, we're still supposed to be Solomon building the temple, but the temples we build now are ourselves and the people around us. And the way we build them is that when we point people to things of eternal value, right? things that won't pass away. By the way, that's what this whole family is about uh, in uh, a few minutes, uh, we have the privilege of welcoming some new members into our family of faith, and um, their story is unique because they grew up, uh, they, they started this church. They're actually on our charter document. Um, and, and I just thought it'd be interesting to pull that up for a minute. So, Drew, would you put that picture up for me? Uh, if you walk into our church through those double doors next to Bolden Hall, uh, and you turn left, right on the wall there, you'll see our charter. 
Uh, and uh, I, I love the idea that there was a group of Christian women and men who said, hey, we think God's calling us to build something here, uh, calling us to build ourselves and our community into this temple for God. And, and when that happened, we didn't have a physical building, right? In fact, everything we owned, I think, was in this one white cabinet that we rolled around. Um, we met in uh, the church, uh, St. Mark's Catholic Church, in their basement. And that group of people said, hey, I think we should, I think God's calling us to call a pastor. And let's take the risk of, of seeing what happens if we, if we ask a pastor to come here full-time for like the 30 people that are currently in our church. And then um, that community grew and grew, and the people on that document began to realize that they were the living stones that Christ was calling to build this spiritual house. And today we celebrate uh, that, that you are those stones, right? and that the house isn't finished that part of the work of the church is to bring in more people and to say, hey, you have an eternal purpose. You are a living stone in which this temple is being built so the world can come and meet God. And so um, we go out and we claim people as part of our temple, right? We claim them as living stones. We claim children through the waters of baptism. And we claim children in orphanages in China. And we claim people um, who have no home. And we claim people who have big, beautiful homes that God has called them to use for Him. And we claim people who live in Rothschild and Schofield and Weston and Wausau. And we claim people that live all around the world. When the earthquake happened in Haiti, um, my kids, um, when we were talking about what had happened, my kids wanted to know, um, is Emergina okay? Because Emergina is the child that our family sponsors and our Mission Starfish school in Go Naive Haiti. And, and it was personal for them, right? What about our friend? Um, because she's one of our living stones. And, and I have this idea, I think it's not my idea, I think it's Christ's idea, um, that, that we, the church, can be this temple where the world comes to encounter God. And at one point, there was a place, right? There was this ark, and they took it into the temple, and the cloud of God's glory and presence came in there. But now, you're like the ark, right? You're like the temple. And, and what if we as the temples of God went into our schools and our classrooms and our sports teams and our offices and our communities and our neighborhoods and our friends and our families, and with us we brought that cloud of God's glory and presence and love and grace? What if the world encountered God through us? I think it would be, um, well, I think it might be a little scary might be stranger than Mars, um, but I believe uh, that this is God's plan, that we are the way that everyone gets to meet God, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So today I want you to remember Paul's words to you. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Thanks be to Him. Amen.